This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm sitting down with Pratik Joshi. Pratik Joshi is the founder and CEO of PlutoShift. He is the author of 13 books on machine learning. He hosts an internationally renowned blog, and his writing has a readership that spans over 200 countries. He has been featured on Forbes, CNBC, TechCrunch, and Bloomberg. He has been a speaker at conferences such as TEDx, the Global Big Data Conference, and Machine Learning Developers Conference. He's passionate about building smart and sustainable and critical infrastructure powered by AI in the developing world. Hi, Pratik. Hey, Deb. So, Pratik, as I was preparing for this interview, I came across a video of you talking about artificial intelligence for the developing world. As somebody who myself spends a lot of time thinking about tech, how it's adapted, adopted, used, created, or misaligned with the developing world, I was really fascinated by this talk. And so I thought I would start there and maybe start by asking you whether you could talk about what that for is in that title, AI for the developing world. When I say AI for the developing world, what I mean is access to the world's best. Meaning, let's say you are a top-notch university in South Korea and you develop an amazing AI algorithm or an AI tool for healthcare. Now, people in Africa, for example, let's say they need it. Kind of, we shouldn't expect that. Hey, if you want, if you want something, you should develop it on your own. Only then you can use it. So, the first part of this is access to the world's best. If somebody somewhere develops something really useful, we should we should take that and provide it to people who really really need it. And the second part of that is localizing it to that that context meaning a simple example is let's say you develop something that works really well in in the US now you cannot copy paste that in india because there are a lot of local nuances could be could be language could be the way transactions are done the the culture the people so if something works before you take it to another part of the world you got to make sure it works in the local context. And a very simple example is e-commerce, right? You know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, e-commerce was, was was big and we just assumed that, oh, credit card, it's part of life. You just swipe your card, you just use the card online, the thing comes to your place, it's great. Now, when you take that exact thing and go to India, it at least back then, like 10, 10-ish years ago, it doesn't really translate because India back then was was a cash based economy. Now, even now, it's it still is. It's, we are moving rapidly towards the digital currency, but it's still cash is 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 very common. So you have to take a product that works, but but it has to be it has to adapt to the local culture. So take e-commerce, the concept works, but instead of a credit card cash payments instead of this, that. So once it works, you've got to fit it and then it works. So when I say for the developing world, I mean access and I mean localizing it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we can think can think not only in the ways in which tech may be misaligned in ways that don't allow the product to translate properly, but in the ways in which it could go disastrously wrong. For example, Facebook's connecting the world mentality and the impulse behind this idea that if we just connected the world, if we were just more connected, we would be better off, we'd be more empathetic, we would be kinder to our neighbor, proved disastrously wrong in the context of Facebook's exportation to a place like Myanmar, where it was used to attend potentially, I think many uh, experts make uh, a, a strong argument in favor of this, mobilize a genocide, right? So not only can products be misaligned, in which case they are useless, they can actually cause a lot of destructive harm. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently in the context of you know not just thinking about how Silicon Valley can monetize products efficiently, but the ways in which Silicon Valley's own composition as a kind of homogeneous space actually ends up manifesting that harm in significant ways. Yeah, I think the intention is, it always starts with uh, with good intention. But as you said, unless we we think through the consequences and also make, making sure that in an ideal world, it works like this, but how else can it be misused or, or incentives can be misaligned? But I think, yeah, I, I agree that as you take a product and you you take it around the world, uh, absolutely, it matters a lot on, on how it's implemented, how it's used. And you, as the provider of the product, you have to think of all of the edge cases, all of the ways in which it can go wrong, because eventually it will go wrong. Somebody's going to figure out something uh, and use it in a way that is is very harmful. I, I wanted to go back to back up and and I wanted to ask you, what what led to your interest in AI for the developing world? I grew up in uh, a small town in southern India. And, and obviously, as you know, the, India has grown a lot, and it has obviously now, it's, 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 it's fantastic to, to see all the development. But really, growing up, basic things like water was a luxury. And I thought it was just like the way of life. Like water comes in once every you know, two to three days, and you take it, you store it, and you wait for the next time you have water. And then I came here, there's a tap, you open it, the water is always here. It was almost like magic, right? So it's it's things like that, that I realized, you know, technology can be used to make real, real impact. And oh, that's part of it. The, the professionally, AI is something that came out of my interest in mathematics. Growing up, I think for as, as, as long as I can remember, always enjoyed mathematics and mathematics to signal processing to data to AI. So any field that allowed me to leverage mathematics became interesting to me. So AI, uh, kind of my interest in AI came through that and developing world because I grew up in, 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 in that part of the world where access to basic resources is not granted. You have to work for it. So that kind of led me to think about, okay, what can my professional expertise, AI, right? What How can I use it to think about what can we do for a developing world. So that was the core motivation behind launching PlutoShift as well is is water, right? Bringing, using this AI tool for water. And that was uh, that was my first spark in, in doing this. And then uh, after that, I've, I've given talks, written about it and uh, building on the same topic as well. Well, why AI specifically as a specific technology among other technologies for the developing world? What is it about AI? I mean, obviously I'm biased because I am a student of AI, but 
more broadly, I feel like AI can be morphed into so many different things that it can it can actually make an impact. Meaning, if you build a piece of hardware, you can't once it's done. If you want to do something different, you got to build a new piece of hardware. And when it comes to AI, the basic, the fundamentals remain the same, and you can use the same foundational framework to discover new drugs, to prevent water wastage, to prevent electricity wastage, to reduce the carbon footprint, to reduce traffic congestion. So basically, from the same foundational framework, you can address some real real problems that are part of of day-to-day lives, especially in um, the developing world. So that's my key motivation. And again, it's not just AI. And like that, obviously, there are so many other tools that can be used. But as a student of AI, as somebody who has built a career, I feel like AI could be a very powerful tool that can provide access to the world's best, any kind of product, uh, could be healthcare, could be e-commerce, could be resource utilization. Once it's developed in, I don't know, like let's say we have somebody found, find something amazing in Palo Alto, the next day, that product can be used by someone in, in a small town in India because mobile is prevalent. And if you build an app that can add a little bit of value. So I feel like distribution is also a very powerful, it's a powerful mechanism to build something useful, ship it out, and let somebody use it, actually, to to do something good. Yeah, but help me unpack it a little bit, because I'm still not quite clear exactly what it is that AI does that other technologies are not able to do. Is it that AI allows us to see patterns and gather data and understand and learn in ways that other technologies do not? Is it that AI allows for the automation of things or the development of, you know, smart objects that may be transformative. Share it with me exactly why it is that AI is such an incredibly important technology among other technologies. What does it do? So AI is the ability for a machine to make smart decisions. Now, let me unpack that. So let's say that you are running a facility and your job is to take raw water, like dirty water, clean it, and then you distribute it to your residents. Let's say this is a common situation. It's in every part of the world, there are these facilities. Let's say you use you know, 100, 200 membranes in series and parallel. So that's that's how you clean the water. Dirty water goes in, clean water comes out. If a, a person has to manage this, you know, managing 200 membranes, keeping an eye on it on, on an hour-by-hour basis, it's very difficult. And as a membrane cleans more water, it gets blocky, it gets dirty, and what happens is it starts sucking up 5x more electricity. Now, you, you wouldn't even know for weeks and months. Now, imagine in the developing world, electricity is expensive, it's, uh, and water is expensive, and it's been like weeks and months where you just wasted all of that electricity and water on, on something that could have been useful to somebody else. So, with AI, you just walk in at 9 o'clock and it tells you membrane number 73 is eating up 5x more electricity, go clean it. Now, with that single insight, it could be a simple text, right? You can save so much electricity and also you can clean more water per day. So more people will have access to clean water. So this is a simple example where AI is just augmenting a human, right? Obviously, at the end of the day, a human has to make the call, but if you have to do it by yourself, you'll go to the first one, then to the second membrane, then third, and by the time you get to the real answer, it's, it's late. So this is kind of, it's almost like a co-pilot, 
where AI is a co-pilot in your decision making, and then it kind of it becomes part of your of your life to manage the facility. So this is how AI can impact resource consumption in one way. Another example is let's say you are you're running a, a chemical facility and your job is to clean up your effluent before you you know send it out to the environment. And let's say you 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 build many products like you know, ketchup and cheese and paper and bottles. You the fluid is is infused with chemicals, it's dirty, and EPA says you gotta clean it. You can't just throw it out in the in the lake. If a human has to do it, they'll just throw money and resources at the problem. You 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 lose way more cleaning chemicals and energy to get the job done. With with AI, it'll tell you at three o'clock you need this much chemicals and then you meet the requirements, the environment is clean, you saved chemicals and energy and everybody wins. So you know it can again, it's a co-pilot in these decisions. So that's the a couple of examples where AI can be very impactful. Yeah, I mean, as you were talking, I couldn't help but think about the fact that uh, in the West, we're using technology to jettison us from our planet to another planet uh, as we use resources in a way that makes them entirely unstable in a context where we use AI to do things like make sure that if we are running out of mustard in our smart refrigerator, we get a signal to our phone to tell us to buy more mustard. And here you're talking about technologies and uses of AI that are fundamentally life-saving, that are life-sustaining in a very practical, very basic way. And it couldn't help but think about this kind of digital divide and this kind of divide between a kind of first world thinking about and use of an application of technological products and technological thinking and the use of such things in the developing world. Is this something that you're seeing as well? And if so, how do you, how do you grapple with that as a Silicon Valley entrepreneur? That's actually a very good question. And I keep thinking about that quite a bit. And that's why I think having a, a world's perspective really helps put things in context. And I mean, I am in a situation where I spent good like two thirds of my life in India. And now I've been here for the for the last one third. And unless you live through the situations, it'll always be uh, theoretical to, to somebody building a product. And I think that's what is is really drives the, the whole thing. And unless you know how to, what problems exist, and how to make things work in uh, in, in those situations. It's uh, yeah, I, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't push the boundaries of of science and technology. Meaning, whatever you think is a luxury now, developed by Silicon Valley elite, in about a decade, that's going to be like pedestrian, and everybody uses it, leverages it, and everybody ends up using it. So, I do think. The research and development and the iterations and and all of that is very important because that's how you you know that's how science and technology that's how progress happens but but yeah, I agree that depending on on your interest level or who you are and what you want to build i I like building I like things that are useful today and I like things that are useful around the world, so it depends on where you are on that spectrum you'll build something so I, I do think that there's value in pushing the boundaries, but but yes, I think solving problems such as water, energy, pollution, climate change, it's uh it's definitely very pressing and especially developing world could could really, really use some of these products. I wanna push into that a little bit further on an ethical level, because 
I wonder uh, after the maybe ethical obligation that Silicon Valley entrepreneurs have to using their technological capabilities and leveraging it toward solving, you know, really essential problems, problems that may not seem essential, you know, in, in 20 years, such as the problem of do I have enough ketchup or mustard in my refrigerator, which may at some point be a universal problem, but but problems that seem to me right now in this moment to be much more basic. Do you think that Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneurs or American companies broadly have a moral obligation to work on technologies? Or that Silicon Valley venture capitalists or American financiers broadly have an ethical responsibility to fund technologies for the developing world? If so, why? How do we think about global responsibility in the Valley? When it comes to building products, and at the heart of it, the people involved in the ecosystem, they need to see a business value. Meaning, if you're an investor or if you're building something, you need to see a path to scale, a path to a financial outcome. The way I think about it is investing money to solve these problems is, is absolutely vital. But having a market that attracts builders and financers is, is a better solution, right? Because on one hand, we can, we can be altruistic and hope that people do the right thing. But I think having a, an active market where you reward people who spend their time building products and people who invest their time and money and energy into backing those people, if that structure exists, it's, it's just a fantastic outcome. So I think the, we are seeing that a little bit. It's, it's taking shape more. There are many good, very smart people who I know that are entering from, from what we call luxury technologies to something more fundamental like removing carbon or water or like preventing water wastage or solving like healthcare for for in, in remote parts of the world so i am seeing that trend where people move from from here to to that but i feel like it's it it could be more and should be more uh, and i think once once we see some of these successes it'll just build up an ecosystem meaning an ecosystem that attracts capital that attracts people that attracts the attention of the of the people i think we'll see more of these products and services coming out that's going to solve real problems and i i personally think you should do something that is um, actually that is at the heart of ikigai i'm sure you would have heard of the japanese concept but can can you define it can you define it for us just so that our listeners have some context for it? Yes. Ikigai is a Japanese concept. Really what it says is when it comes to life or career or choosing a path, you should choose something that's at the intersection of four circles. It's like a Venn diagram. Something that you enjoy, something you're good at, something that's good for the world, and something that will get you paid. So if you find something that's at the intersection of these four circles, that's your Zen. You'll keep going for a very long time. You won't get tired or bored. You'll just keep building. So one important part in this whole thing is something that's good for the world. So if you build something that is genuinely useful and impactful to, to people with real problems, it's just very exciting. It's inspiring. It's, it motivates you. It energizes you. And I feel like when I talk to people who are doing that, 
their energy level is at a whole new it's that they're always energetic they're so motivated and they're excited so i do think that it's it's important for silicon valley to build because that's what we do best it's Silicon Valley can attract capital, can attract people, can build products. So I think if you direct all of this energy towards that, I think something fantastic is going to come out of this. And people are doing this. They're starting to do it. We'll see more of it. Really? So what do you think has changed that has started people to do this? And what do you think still needs to change to get more people to do it? I think in the last decade or so, a lot of the underlying pieces have been commoditized. And what I mean by that is, let's say that I, I came from India, or let's say you came from some some country in, in Asia or Africa, and you get educated here and you want to build something. Now, something simple like uh, collecting data, like temperature and pressure, flow rates via sensors, we think it's very kind of common here. Like having sensors that collect temperature data is very common in the U.S. We take it for granted, but it's not so common. So commoditizing basic things like cloud services or collecting data or storing data or accessing data or talking to people remotely like Zoom, right, works flawlessly. Like we have so many tools to talk to people. So in the last 10 years, a lot of these essential underlying pieces have been commoditized. So now you can take all of that and focus on the real problem at hand. So invest all your energy and time into building the solution. Like 10 years ago, the big problem was how do I spin up a, a cloud server? Like AWS came along and solved it. But it's like these simple things. If you spend all your energy on basic things, and the real thing gets left behind. So that's the trend that's allowing people to kind of... Uh, I know many people who actually go to a country they've never been in and then spend time with people, understand the problem and try to solve those problems. So that's the main trend. The other trend is it's attracting capital now, meaning people are putting real capital behind companies that are solving like climate problems or food problems or water problems, energy problems. And there are big companies building good solutions. And when you see success, it attracts good people, like good engineers, good salespeople, good marketing people, good product people. They want to work at companies with meaning and purpose, but also they want a, a successful career. So I think these good examples inspire people to to work on it. So good people, good capital, and that's what I think is is it's trending in the right direction. Yeah, I, I'm really inspired by this. I'm seeing more and more of what I think of and what has been termed um, social impact investing, taking up a larger space in the uh, investing space. And you know, I see engineers newly graduated from college really caring much more about what they get to do in terms of solving big problems that they're passionate about, that they care about, than whether or not they get a big paycheck. It's really exciting to see that potentially you can do both. And we'll get back to that, I hope, uh, later in the conversation. But before we do that, I want to talk about a few facts that I've heard you cite. This is, I think, related to the fact that you're trying to solve big problems in the space of you know, um, social uh, impact. Fact number one, water will be scarcer than oil in 2030. Demand is going to exceed supply by 40%. Fact number two, less than 1% of all water on earth is fit for human consumption. 
Fact number three, the cost of water rapidly will increase by about 400%. And fact number four, 2.1 trillion gallons of water is lost in the United States due to leaks, broken water mains, faulty meters. I almost said faculty meters. I blame faculty <laughs> and academia for a lot of things, but I probably can't blame them for that particular problem. You say that the solution to this is data. How so? What can data do? Data helps you be aware of what's happening. And again, when I say data, I don't mean like the data science tools or machine learning. I mean data in the sense that you need to know what's happening. Like what are people saying? What is actually happening at the facilities at the ground level? And simple things like, let's say you set out and you want to solve the water problem and you don't even know where the water is flowing to or how much water is being consumed, like what people want to do with, with that water. If you don't know, if you don't have that data, you'll just guess, right? If you, you can you can sit, you can sit here and guess what people want, or you can actually go and gather data. And data is not just numbers, it's not just sensors. It means just data that will help you paint a picture of what's happening. Now once you gather the data from sensors, from from people, from surveys, from whatever policy exists, because sometimes what happens is the incentives and policy they want to make it just drives weird behavior. You you wouldn't even know like why are people doing that? Oh, that policy kind of benefits this people and, and it, it punishes that other behavior. So people do so. Just knowing, gathering all of this data and putting it in, in context. It helps. Now, once you do that, the next step is converting this mess of data into structured information. Basically, kind of, if you look at it, it should it should make make sense. So, going from so data collection, making sense of the data, and then extracting information. That's when you you know what the problem is, and you can see a path to a solution. I'm glad you qualified what you mean by data because. Um, you're asking something that I'm, I always grapple with, which is what is data to begin with? You know, data, I think in engineering terms, frequently gets wrapped up with the term numbers pretty exclusively. Of course, I come from the humanities and the humanities data is much broader and more extensive of a term. It includes personal narratives, anecdotes, local knowledge, um, mythologies, uh, all of the kind of human stories on the ground in this in this intersection where you're talking about on the one hand human rights and human needs basic human needs such as water i think electricity access to life-saving resources and on the other hand technologies frequently coming from silicon valley i think sometimes i get worried that the emphasis in silicon valley on data as numbers oftentimes overshadows or eliminates local knowledge or local stories or, you know, the stories that local communities tell about their own needs or their own experiences. How do we grapple with data on the one hand as people working in Silicon Valley, uh, building companies here and using knowledge local to Silicon Valley? And on the other hand, um, engaging that data with the kinds of local stories and local knowledge that I think I would at least want to insist on as very important alternative forms of data that oftentimes contradict what the numbers have to say. How do you put together that whole kind of data set when you have these very different kinds of forms of data? 
I think many Silicon Valley companies have learned uh, very expen- in a very expensive way when they took something that worked here and without any local context tried to implement. And that kind of ties very nicely into how you look at the data. Meaning if you gather data only from, say, people in the United States, and then you take that and you apply to, say, Spain or India or China, it's not going to work. Because even though your data set was very rich, you took data from millions of people, you learned everything you could, but what you didn't do is you didn't learn about the local context. Meaning you're taking something that's that's built in the sandbox and then you're trying to implement it in something completely different. So I think people will either learn and it'll be extremely expensive, but they will learn, right? One way or the other, the learning happens. It's just the price you have to pay for it because the, some, of the, some of the mistakes are very, very expensive, both in terms of the, the capital that goes into it and also the time and energy. And, and there are many companies in the graveyard who didn't bother with the local context and they ended up perishing. So I do think strongly that the definition of data has to has to expand. And I think many people do realize it. If, if you're self-aware, if you're aware of what you're doing and where you're going, you know that data is not just numbers. It's not just, you know, it's not just bits. It's not just statistics. It's it's more than that. And including contextual data. And, and also, let's say once you collect the data from your conversations, the realities in the field, how things are done, policy, culture. Now, you need to figure out how to convert that to something that can be analyzed. Let's say you conduct an interview with you know a thousand people. Great, a lot of rich insights. Now, it's just a thousand conversations. You can't make any you cannot extract any anything unless you you structure those conversations and you see a trend. A lot of thousand people, if 900 people say something, that's a trend. That is a very, very useful piece of information. But unless you see it, unless you structure it, you won't, you won't see it. So the goal is to define data as, as something that appears in various shapes and forms. Now, the way you quantify it, eventually everything has to get converted to numbers so that you analyze it. But the way the shape and form of data coming in, that is that can come from anywhere. Can you give me an example of a company that you think is doing this well? Yeah. There are actually there are a few good companies that are are doing this. Like I'll take a simple example. India has many, many languages, too many languages. If if you build something that's only in English it's just uh, it's people either won't won't get it or won't use it or it just won't won't matter that much. So I think a simple example would be Google adapting. They're offering their services to 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 kind of make it work in India, kind of get people to embrace it. And they did they did it in in multiple ways. One is language. The other is the operating system. Like in India, you can't at least back then. iPhone is too expensive. So. How do you how do you get kind of a, a good smartphone with a good operating system, and the average person can use it to pay for groceries, to to travel, to just make a, a simple living as a as a vendor on a on a farmer's market. So kind of building something that is local, that is kind of that people can actually use on a day to day basis. I think that's that's one example that comes to mind. 
the other example is 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 Amazon, right? Amazon again. These are big famous examples. There are many small companies that are, are figuring it out, but making the e-commerce engine work in India. It took some time. They had their learnings, but uh, I think making things work in India, we have a different reality. There's no single universal language. We talk, like the culture is different. Each state has its own cultural nuances. If you don't get it, you won't be able to scale in India. And I'm sure every country, like Indonesia, has a completely different set of, of constraints, right? And uh, similarly, China. Uh, similarly, Nigeria, Pakistan, every country. These are huge countries. Are not Pakistan has two hundred million people, right? India, obviously, they're huge. One point close close to one point four now, one point four billion. When you have big populations, kind of making things work takes a lot of patience. And I think uh, these couple of companies are doing uh, doing a good job. Can you give me an example of what you called an expensive mistake? <laughs> yeah, in the book. Um, super pumped i know the, the book about uber I, I, that's the example that comes to mind uh, obviously a lot of missteps along the way and there's so many examples i can take but one example is the driver incentives right so basically the goal was to incentivize drivers so that more people sign up but what it did was this the same driver just bought like 50 phones kept it in the car and every new account sign up just led to a payment and they were they weren't doing any rights they're just taking the money and they didn't think of it or at least they thought and by then they had sunk in like a lot of money into this so very very expensive mistake another example in india because of the the whole credit card payment it's it just uh, for e-commerce it just doesn't work so what flipkart did flipkart is, is an indian company e-commerce they did something called cash on delivery so it's a simple, simple nuance, but when e-commerce was new, fraud was a huge, huge problem. Another example is like eBay. In America, eBay works nice. People have trust. Like if I pay you, you'll ship me the, the table that you showed me on the picture and everything works well. In India, they had to figure out how to make that work because we don't have like, a, at least growing up, we didn't have a universal SSN. You can't just track everybody. It was very kind of different language, fragmented system. The trackability is, is nowhere close to what we have here in, in the U.S. So building trust into the system was a very expensive mistake because if I paid you, you took the money and you went away, I don't have the good, then the company has to pay me, right? So it's a very, very expensive mistake when there's like you know, a billion people that you're dealing with. So these are some of the little things where you thought you're doing good and then you didn't realize the local context and then you ended up paying like a billion dollars. That's how they learned. That's a very, very expensive mistake. I mean, what you're talking about is, you know, having data, not just in terms of the numbers, but as you talked about also data as local knowledge, as understanding local context, as understanding the local culture as well. I mean, does Silicon Valley, to your mind, have that? We've built up certainly the capability to export products globally and certainly built up the demand for products built in Silicon Valley globally. But does Silicon Valley, to your mind, have the ability to think in these kind of culturally informed ways that allow the products to translate across borders? If not, what needs to change? Yeah, I the context is, is lacking here, meaning if you're if you are born and raised here, yeah, building a product for 
big populations in, in India, China, Indonesia, Pakistan, Nigeria. Yeah, you won't be able to do it, at least not without like a local head. So I think what has worked, at least for now, is Silicon Valley capital being infused into local companies, local entrepreneurs who are born and raised in those economies. They know all the nuances. So I think instead of growing up here, building product there, take the capital and infuse it into the right companies because they they know what they're doing. So I think that's one model that has led to phenomenal success. And uh, I think building product, you need local context. There's just no way around it. Even if it's a very cookie cutter, copy paste product, it still won't work unless you have the local context. So I think, I'm sure in the future, other models will evolve. But for now, capital is abundant here. But if you want access to the market, the economy, the people, basically the customer base or the user base, I think infusing capital in those economies and backing great, great people, great companies, I think that's that has led to success. And uh, I'm sure we'll see more of that. And also, if you are uh, a builder who's born and raised here, yeah, you got to either go and live there for a little bit or at least appoint a, a local head of, of, of that zone and let them let them run it because there are some things that you will never, ever get. Like people think, why? Why? That doesn't make any sense, but that's how things work in, in, in those economies. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in bringing this back to your experience as well because you talk about how for you, solving the water crisis with AI problem that you're trying to solve was not something abstract or detached as a phenomenon for you, but rather something that was deeply personal coming from the experience and the background that you have. And I'm I'm curious for from that perspective, what do you think that Silicon Valley entrepreneurs wouldn't be able to see? What couldn't they know? What kind of knowledge couldn't they get traction on that you could provide that that comes from a firsthand experience that comes from local knowledge yeah i think unless you see basic things like you know when i tell people oh you open the tap and there's no water and that's like happens day in and day out weeks months years it's just the same thing it's just something so abstract or foreign that it's it's impossible. What do you mean? If you have internet, water, and electricity all the time, like I, I can't fathom a world where you don't have that. So unless you actually live through those scenarios, you won't know where the choke points are. You won't know what works, what doesn't. You won't know how a person adopts new technology. And so building is not the problem, but distribution, distributing the product and uh, making it stick. That's where the real problem happens. So distribution or making a product stick is about understanding the user, right? the customer, how they live, why they do certain things, why they would never do a certain thing. Those things, you can read about it. You can read a book, article, you can talk to people, but it's something that is kind of abstract in your mind. So when something is abstract, you find it hard to build. Like if I tell you, imagine a 75-dimensional solid. You'll say, sure, but can you picture it? I can't, right? Because it's just so abstract. I don't know what, what it means. It's just on paper, on mathematics. I, I know, I sure, a vector has some. It's, it's so abstract that I can't think about it. And this is kind of like that. And so that's where 
it it kind of it falls short a little bit is understanding and i'm sure look if you're building a product here it's it's many companies have built amazing products huge huge successes and the buying power of the average american consumer is is great and so you can build amazing companies and it'll keep on going but the world economy is huge and it's not easy to understand different cultures so I'll, i'll take a simple example growing up in india every kid on average is trilingual they just you just need to know three languages and again that also seems silly to people like my friends colleagues not silly but they're like really everyone knows three it's, it's because here you got to make a real real effort to learn a second language and third would be like you know it's a stretch in india by just any average from they can have they'll know three languages they have to for basic survival and so like these little things if you know you'll be able to build amazing services and products and offerings that really stick yeah that's the context that's missing and and the good thing is silicon valley attracts some of the best people from all these economies so they come here they know how to build a company attract capital and you know then then build for something that can be applicable to to com- countries around the world. I want to flip the question a little bit because as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, you've spent a third of your life here at this point. And I would imagine that having spent a third of your life here, you know, the the balance between there and here and what's abstract and what's real shifts as well. And so I guess, you know, I wanted to ask whether or not at this point you feel like there are some new challenges that come up with trying to solve a problem that you're no longer physically there to witness firsthand obviously i would imagine that in the past decade or so i don't know how old you are but i assume that a third of your life is around 10 years or so yeah. i would assume that some things over there have changed as well too so what are some of those challenges that you've experienced now that you are trying to solve a problem there being here you no know, absolutely things have changed a lot and and obviously my parents live in india so i keep visiting more regularly but uh yeah the amount of change is 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 insane you know when i left india smartphone was not even a thing yet right and and now everybody has a smartphone and not just that in india smartphone is used for everything like if you live in a community to open a gate there is an app to to pay a vendor there's an app the to to buy a ticket to do everything there is there's an app for everything and the speed at which things have uh, evolved especially i mean mobile i know i mean, mobile was was fast but i mean the amount of penetration mobile has and that's just one example mobile has in india is is amazing so keeping up is is definitely like once 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 you don't live in india it's hard to keep up with the with the local with the changes and uh, what i have seen is the cultural nuances they remain the same like i can just go to any state in india and just fit right in and i know how to how to navigate that but on the the stack meaning what people use to get work done that has changed rapidly so yeah you do lose uh, some of the context and uh, unless you really kind of try hard to to stay in touch stay in watch the progress it's uh, yeah you lose the context it's you have to make an effort to to 
stay in touch and and see what's happening but yeah you do lose uh, certain things are are good. like culturally it's good but the the local context the people how things get done they keep changing all the time so yeah it, it's uh, it's it's not as easy to be in it unless you're not living there one of the reasons that i was really excited to talk to you is because i feel like the work that you're doing addressing real problems that determine the quality of life and the, the capacity for life for valuable problems that need to be solved problems that are you know um experienced primarily by vulnerable and marginalized populations that that kind of work exemplifies a core ethic of the show that you can do well i.e you can make money building a, a successful profitable company on the one hand and do good i.e things that are socially valuable i.e things that fit the ethical good that help people how do you think about that balance between doing well on the one hand and doing good on the other hand is it hard to balance as an entrepreneur are there trade-offs that you've had to make in my early 20s i did purely what or was like the the career path meaning I went to school, studied machine learning, specialized in it, got my first job just being a machine learning engineer and it was it was good until I realized okay, I'm doing this. I'm I'm good at this one thing. I enjoy it. But what about meaning and purpose? Like what do you is it is it really good for the world meaning if I increase the accuracy of image recognition by 0.07% will it really matter i mean sure it's it's something but is it what about meaning and impact so that's when my mid 20s had a little bit of a like an awakening that's where i think i realized i have to find my ikigai meaning i i didn't think i'd found my my zen and i think that it's 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 a process you won't just wake up one day and then find your zen you have to kind of work on it and then stick to it so i do strongly believe that you can do well and and do good and that's something that drives me a lot why i wake up every day do what i do and i'll keep doing it for a very long time mostly because it just feels we are in sync we as in me and the thing i'm doing we get along very well we are in sync and it feels like a, you know my my zen mode i never never feel angry or frustrated or or low it's just it's just great to wake up every day and uh, and do this and i think obviously it took a few years for me to find my zen but once you find it i think it's worth sticking to it because it just it energizes you it motivates you and if you can build make it useful and and it's also good for the world it's uh it's a wonderful feeling because i i believe that this is an, an like an endurance game meaning it's not a sprint so whatever you do especially building a, a career or making an impact it's an endurance game so if you get bored if you are waiting for some big outcome you you'll never you you'll get tired way before you you reach the the end so i think it's the journey itself if you enjoy it at that that's all it counts i do strongly think that you can do well and do good if you find your zen what advice would you want to offer the next generation of students humanity students and technologists who want to do well and to do good find your purpose but i know it sounds pretty straightforward it's simple but i think i do think many many people just go through life they're like oh i got this job that was like the first job i applied to got it and now it's 15 years later and 
sure like what happened like i i wanted to do some some good for the world i wanted to do x y and z so i think many people don't consciously make a decision of how they spend their time and career is part of it in fact that's the biggest part of it meaning your work whatever you choose to do you do that 8 hours a day right that's that's a lot of time to to spend on something so i think finding that that sweet spot of of something that you're good at you enjoy doing something that's good for the world and obviously you got to pay the rent so find something that 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 helps you pay the rent as well i think you should be very deliberate about how you spend your time who you spend it with and i see a lot of people get a lot of anxiety or anger or frustration that oh my god i want to do that but i'm doing this well you are an adult stop doing this and start doing that people blame um the the situations or decision or this and that but i do think it's pretty simple you take a step back and you think about are you doing meaningful work is that aligned with your purpose and many people realize that oh wait what's this thing called purpose what what is that right so i think it's the it's worth finding what who you are and what your purpose is and kind of building something deliberately to make that happen i think it's it's worth it and uh it just it helps you last very long in terms of uh, building something there's a book that i recently finished reading by the computer scientist cal newport who writes on this concept of deep work and one of the things that he writes about in that book deep work this idea of going deep of focusing of going really intensely into a problem is that many people think of their happiness as tied up in either fleeting moments of joy on the one hand or accomplishing major life goals on the other hand but he says that actually the studies show that our happiness emerges when we feel like our time every single day was spent in purposive meaningful ways that people think that they're happiest during their leisure time but actually what the study shows is that they're happiest when they are at work provided that their work is meaningful and dignified and provides them that sense of purpose since i read that i've tried to really make sure that my work is squarely focused on things that drive me with purpose and meaning and i feel really privileged and really lucky that i get to do that absolutely i do think that people are happy when as you said there's a purpose to their work like how they spend their time when when that happens you don't wait for the weekend or that vacation or that end where you're like oh thank god i'm going to stop working now and just ride off into the sunset i think that feeling will make you ignore the present the journey you're on so i think choosing the right journey is going to lead to a great destination but i think choosing the right journey is very important thank you very much for team thanks deb thank you for having me and uh, it was a wonderful conversation